Now, the story of Ruth, it isn't a terribly long story, but it is a story of family tragedy, of heartache, of loss, of loved ones, of poverty. But as we have learned, it's also a love story. It's a story of Ruth's devotion and faithfulness to Naomi, and it's a story of Boaz's kindness and love for Ruth. In the very first Sunday, I described it kind of like a Disney movie. Think of Cinderella. She loses her parents. She falls onto hard times, a life of servanthood, as she is under the rule of her wicked stepmother. But then a prince comes along and saves her from the life of hardship. Or Bambi, he loses his mother, and he goes on a journey to to eventually fulfill his lineage and become the prince of the forest. Or even young Simba, the lion prince, who when his father was killed, he wandered into a foreign area, foreign land, and had to kind of go through some growing up times before he finally came back to take his rightful place as the Lion King. But more than just a love story, more than just a story of tragedy and redemption, Ruth, the book of Ruth, is what I call a God story. Because only God could bring these things together and make them happen. If you remember in one of the earlier sermons, Brian talked about the fact that, that Ruth just happened to end up going to the field of Boaz. The Hebrew said it happened to happen to happen. It was almost kind of that wink, wink, like we know this wasn't just chance. It was not a coincidence. As I have told you before, there is no word coincidence in the Hebrew language. They are what I like to call God incidents. But the biggest reason why I believe this is a God story why only God could move in this story and make this story be true is because the whole premise of this story is about a young woman who on her own decides to live with her mother-in-law. Now, ladies, really, think about it. How many of you would honestly say, I want to follow my mother-in-law around for the rest of my life? Surely God was moving in this story. Obviously, that is a joke. But before it was a, a story of tragedy, of loss, of love, and redemption, it was what I would call an economic story. The very first verse of the book of Ruth, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. There was a famine in the land. Prospects were not looking good for this man. His, man. his name was Elimelech and his family. So Elimelech thinks he may have better luck looking elsewhere. So they go for a while to the country of Moab. Now they did not intend for this move to be permanent. But unfortunately for him and for his sons, they never made it back. They died in the land of Moab. Now, why should we care about the economic part of this story? Well, some of you may know I'm a financial advisor. I may be interested in some of this, but why should most of you care about the economic part of this story? 
Well, most people view the Bible as a book only of morality. It's a book that teaches us right and wrong, how to live a moral life. Oftentimes, when we think of the Bible, we think of the Ten Commandments, right? Rules, do's, and don'ts about how to live by a moral code, how to love others and be a good person. But if that's all the Bible is to you, you miss out on so much more. This book is literally the living word of God. It is a story from cover to cover of grace and redemption. Not just for you, not just for me, but for the whole world. Everything in this book points to the nature of God, of who he is, his personality. It points us to Jesus. Because of this, the Bible has so much more depth about all areas of life. Why? Because God created this life. He created this world. I'm not just talking about the physical, material world. I'm not even talking about the spiritual realms. I'm talking about all of it, how it all works together. God created not just the stuff. He created the laws of science. He created certain social orders, how all aspects of society should run. And this includes economics, government, and even politics. We are going to get to chapter 4, I promise you. But I'm going to go on a tangent for a little bit. Because I believe part of the reason why the book of Ruth was written and why it is in the Bible it's not just to tell the story of this young woman, Ruth, or her mother-in-law, Naomi. It's not just about the personal tragedy and triumph. But this book showcases God's law of the land for his people in a way that no other book does. How even his social order is a blessing to his people. Now, where does Ruth take place in context of the biblical story? That first verse says it was during the time of Judges. It was actually during the end of the time of Judges. Well, when was that? Well, the Judges was in between when the people were delivered out of slavery from Egypt, they were given the law, they wandered through the wilderness, and then eventually made it into the promised land. Then you have the time of Judges, and then after that is the time of Kings, when King David, King Solomon, King Saul... Those stories there. That's when the judges happened. So it takes place in this time when they've already conquered the promised land. Now they have to live in it. They settle in it and they live in it. But they live in it in a time as a nation without any centralized government or king. God is their king. God is their lawgiver. God tells them how to live in all areas of life. Now, they don't always follow it, but God laid the framework for them to follow. God instituted a radical new social, economic, and governmental system at Mount Sinai. Now, when we think of Mount Sinai and the law, we think of only of the Ten Commandments. But God gave them so much more. Immediately after the Ten Commandments, God gave laws on societal living. 
laws on treatments of servants, laws on personal injury cases. In fact, many of our workman comp laws come from this, from the Bible. Laws on protection of property, lending money, treatment of foreigners, widows and orphans, taking care of the poor. Laws on fair, judi uh, fair judicial system. Let me give you an example of how radical this was. So here's a group of people. They had spent literally hundreds of years in slavery. 50 days after the Israelites have been delivered from Egypt in slavery, they come to Mount Sinai where God gives them the law. He starts with the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment he gives them. Does anybody know what the fourth commandment is? Nope, that's the fifth. That's close. The fourth is the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath holy. And what does he say in that? He says, on the seventh day, you shall do no work. Here's a group of people who literally have worked pretty much every day of their life. And that's what their father did and their father did before them. And God comes along and says, every seventh day, you shall do no work. This is a radical concept for these people. The other six days, well, they can work, but the one commandment that they have to follow is not to work on the seventh day. Then, immediately after the first Ten Commandments, what's the first thing he talks about? Treatment of slaves. Again, here's people who have been mistreated as slaves for literally centuries, with no laws or guidelines. Whatever the Pharaoh says goes. There's no workman's comp. There's no, nobody who's sticking up for their side of the things. And God lays down guidelines first thing. Now, understand, when I say slavery or servanthood, what is described in the Bible, what was practiced by the Israelites, was, was not anything close to what they experienced in Egypt. Or what we experienced in early southern America. These were people who fell into debt and couldn't pay it back. Or maybe they weren't able to fulfill an oath that they made. Something happened to where they were in debt to another person. And God says, you must not mistreat them. Their service is only to last six years. And then after that six-year period, they're not only set free, but whoever they were serving has to supply them liberally, has to bless them as the Lord has blessed them. So they are set up for life to go on and know, not be a slave again. Deuteronomy 15, 14 says, Give to the person who serves you as the Lord has blessed you. Now during this time, there was no debtor's prison. In fact, in all of God's law, Prison is never mentioned because the Lord doesn't want us to live as captives or to live in bondage to anyone or anything. What about lending money? God says not to charge interest and debts were forgiven every seventh year. Now, how many of you wish that debts were forgiven every seven years or that you could borrow money with no interest? What about taking care of the poor? There was no federal government program back then. But God says, lend to the poor and needy generously. 
Again, in Deuteronomy 15.8, it says, be open-handed and freely lend to the poor whatever they need. Doesn't say whatever they want or whatever they ask, but give generously whatever they need. And then there's a commandment to the landowners. He says, don't harvest the edge of your edges of your crops. Don't go over your fields or your vineyards a second time to gather what you missed. And don't bend over and pick up what you drop on the ground. Leave that for the poor and needy to come and gather. Now compare this to our welfare system. People are provided for, yet the people actually work for their food. It does not incentivize people not to work, and it doesn't forcibly take money from one person to give it to another. If only... Oh, and then there's no taxes. There's no taxes in the land. The only thing God requires is tithe on the produce of the land. If only the government required 10% from our produce, that would be a nice thing. Finally, the most important aspect for the society is the land itself. God declares that the land of Canaan, what we know mostly today as the the nation of Israel, and the Palestinian territories as the promised land. God declares it is his land, an inheritance, and he is going to give it to the children of Israel. It is portioned out equally. First, 12 sections given to the 12 tribes. Actually, technically, it's 11 because the Levites got the cities. They weren't given land. But then from the tribes, it is split up equally to the different clans. And then from there, it is portioned out equally to the individual families. Every family is given their own land. It is theirs forever. God is the landlord. He promises the land to the children of Israel. Each parcel of land is to remain in that family indefinitely. So what if someone sells their land? Well, the person who purchases it, it remains theirs until the year of Jubilee. God instituted this year of Jubilee that happens every 50 years, that not only are debts forgiven, not only are servants and slaves set free, but the land returns to its original owner every 50 years. Land is restored to its original owner. Now, why is all this important? Well, every society for centuries, both before and after this time, have been empires, monarchies, or dictatorships of some sort. Power and wealth is always at the top. Some leaders were even considered a deity, like Pharaoh. He was considered a god. The common people were workers, and the only land rights they had were rights that were given to them by the ruling class. And those rights could be taken away and given to someone else. And the primary source of wealth creation was through owning land. It's for producing crops, for raising livestock, for harvesting resources like wood or metal, etc. All that comes from the land. So think about this. God set up a system for the nation of Israel that they are to be the first society in history where every family had a God-given right 
to own land. Slavery and debt were rare and could only last a maximum of six years. It was the first truly middle-class society in history. There was no centralized capital nor, or government, so there's no centralized wealth. It was spread out among the people. And because of this, surrounding kingdoms were less likely to invade and conquer because there's no centralized wealth to steal. No fortified city that housed gold or chariots or horses like in the days of the kings. No centralized army. Do you see the wisdom in this? It was a form of capitalism that also allowed the unfortunate to get a fresh start every seven years or every 50 years. God institutes a unique system that allows those that work harder and smarter to prosper, but also gives provision and a fresh start for those that are misfortunate. No one can gain control or take advantage of another for very long. Everyone from the top to the bottom have equal rights and are subject to God's laws equally, from the highest ranking leader to the lowest common person. Does this sound familiar to any of you? Much of the founding of this country was based on this system. Now, I'm sure at this point Brian's going, I don't know if I'm ever going to ask this guy to preach again. I asked him to preach on Ruth, and he's talking about government and economics and all this random stuff. How does any of this tie back to the book of Ruth? Well, this book gives living examples of two of these societal laws that God instituted. We learned earlier that Ruth goes out and gleans the wheat in the fields of Boaz. She collects what was left over, what was not harvested, because she was a poor widow, and God provided a way for her to have food. This is the only mention in the Bible of a specific needy person acting out this provision commanded by God. It shows a real-life example of someone who benefits from this law. Think about presidential State of the Union addresses. When they're up there talking, and they a lot of times like to talk about their accomplishments or maybe some new initiatives or laws that they want to institute, a lot of times they will bring, they will have somebody, invite somebody to sit in the audience and they'll tell their personal story about how they benefited from one of the rulings or laws of the land. The book of Ruth is like God standing up and pointing to Ruth in the audience and saying, see, Ruth and Naomi had food to eat because of the law that I instituted. It is also the only detailed record of a kinsman redeemer fulfilling his role for another family member. Now, some of you may have heard this term kinsman redeemer, but it's a bit confusing. What is a kinsman redeemer? What is it about? What does it mean? Well, the word kinsman, kin being family. So just basically a family relative, next of kin. What does redemption mean? We think of this a lot of times in church terms because we don't hear it much um, outside of the church. But basically, this is a definition of redemption or 
something that's being redeemed. When one party's goods or person is in the possession of a second party, and a third party purchases the release of those goods or that person, that purchase is called redemption. The kinsman-redeemer system has to do with both property and posterity. Who will possess and take care of the land, and who will continue the family name and lineage? So, back to Ruth. It all started with this man, Elimelech, and his family. Now, he, just like everyone from the tribe of Judah, was given land by God in their family. So, he owned land. But because of a famine... He left Moab, but he still owned this land back in Bethlehem. Now that he has passed, Naomi, his wife, is now the caretaker of the land. But being older, poor, a widow, she doesn't have the means to manage it and make it profitable. Her only option to survive is to sell it, knowing it will return to her or Ruth at the year of Jubilee. But without an heir, the land won't stay in the family forever. It eventually will pass on to the nearest relative. And Ruth won't inherit the land at all if she marries someone outside the clan of Elimelech. God said the land has to stay within the tribe and the clan that I gave it to. The land needs to stay with the family name. So the kinsman redeemer is a close relative who can both hold the land until the jubilee year and continue Elimelech's lineage. Naomi is beyond childbearing years, but Ruth is not. Her first child, if she were to marry within the clan, will be the heir of Malon, her first husband, Naomi's son. And the child will bear Malon's last name, not the new husband's last name. This child becomes the heir of the land at the year of Jubilee. And so the family's inheritance from God continues. I know that's a lot of complicated stuff, but I felt like it was important for you to understand, first of all, one of the amazing aspects of why this book of Ruth is in the Bible to showcase God's societal laws, but also to help us as we read through chapter 4. So finally, if you all, if you have your Bibles or you have your um, mobile devices, if you can turn to Ruth chapter 4, we're going to go ahead and go through that. Now just prior to chapter 4 and chapter 3, Boaz and Ruth have this conversation and Boaz says that he will be the kinsman redeemer. However, there is another kinsman redeemer who is more closely related, and they basically have the right of first refusal. So he's going to go talk to this man and find out if he wants to take that responsibility first. And if not, he promises that he will be the kinsman redeemer and marry Ruth. Get my glasses here. Okay, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer uh, he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. 
So he went over and sat down. Now, you may have heard this before, but in case you're not aware, the town gate in those biblical times was much like, kind of like the city hall. It's where business deals were transacted. So he knew that if he went to the city gate, there's a good chance he's going to see this man. And this is where there will be witnesses and they can transact deals. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. So far, it doesn't seem like Boaz's plan has gone well, because this man has decided that he is going to redeem the land. But Boaz is a little sneaky here, because he just talks about the land, and he doesn't talk about the idea of carrying on Elimelech's line. So you'll see in the next verse, this man is thinking he's just going to be able to inherit this land, or at least hold it till the year of Jubilee, and hopefully become more profitable uh, through the business that he would gain by owning this land. Verse 5, Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth. Notice, he never mentioned Ruth the first time. So he's kind of getting this guy set up. Here's all the good news. Doesn't sound, sound good? And then he kind of gives the details and tells the bad news. Tries to get him to go, Oh, maybe not such a good idea after all. On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead man of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it for yourself. I cannot. So Boaz's plan actually does work out. Because he explains to him, he leaves the Ruth part out of it and then brings it up at the end. And the man realizes it, it appears as though this man is married um, and that he has children. So Ruth's first child, if he were to marry her, would become uh, the heir of Malon. But any additional ch children would be in his lineage and would have to be equal heirs with any children he already has. So things got a lot more complicated, not to mention the fact that he's already married, and I would imagine he probably doesn't want to bring another woman into the house. So in verse 7 it says, Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. One commentary said that they do this because it's basically a symbol of saying, I will no longer step on this land. It is no longer mine. Now, it wasn't ever his to begin with, but he had the first right to buy it. So he gives the sandal 
to Boaz. And basically, that's their transaction deal saying, I am giving you the right to redeem it in my place. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. Those are the sons. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are my witnesses. I love the fact that Boaz, he's shown kindness in the earlier verse, earlier chapters, but here he shows some cleverness and shrewdness. He is a good businessman, knows how to negotiate. And he's also one who knows what he wants and isn't afraid to say it to the people around him. He is someone that I look up to. I wish I could be more like that at times. He goes on, when Boaz had finished, no, my page just flipped. I was like, where did that come from? Okay. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So in these next couple of verses, they're going to be bringing up some Old Testament names. Rachel and Leah were the women who bore the 12 sons of Jacob, who was then renamed Israel. They were the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is a great blessing that they are saying, May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. Let her be prosperous and let a, a great people come from her. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. We're not for certain, but most commentators think Ephrathah was an area either within or around the city of Bethlehem. But there's a double meaning here. May you have standing in Ephrathah. Ephrathah, the word Ephrathah means fruitfulness. May you have standing in fruitfulness. And may you be famous in Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. So be famous in the house of bread and have standing in fruitfulness. It is a big blessing that they're giving him there. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Again, Old Testament stories that they would understand. But basically, Tamar was a lot like Ruth. She was married to one of Judah's sons. He died. They didn't have any children. She married another one of his sons, and he also died without any children. But through a series of circumstances, God brought about a child. His name was Perez. So Ruth, like Tamar, was a widow, was childless. But yet, may God bring through her a child that ends up continuing the lineage of Judah. So things are ending nicely. This book, 
wraps up almost like a Hollywood story, like a fairy tale, like I'd mentioned, kind of like a Disney movie. Reading on, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, the mother-in-law, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better, than, better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Things end happily ever after. Ruth gives birth to a son. The women bless Naomi. Her life is restored. She is taken care of in her old age. Her daughter-in-law loves her very much. And she who lost two sons herself now has a son again. And Ruth finds her true love. She is married, and she has a built-in nanny to help her raise Obed. And Obed is the grandfather of King David. It truly is like a Hollywood ending. But it is more than that, because it is a true story. It ends with a blessing a blessing of property, of posterity, and prosperity. Yes, it is a story of tragedy and triumph. Yes, it is a love story. It's even a story that shows us part of God's social design in action. But it is also a story that points us to Jesus. Obed is the grandfather of King David. And as we know, King David is in the lineage of Jesus. It is a clear picture of the sovereignty of God. God doesn't miss an opportunity to turn any situation to good, to use the loss of loved ones, to use a childless widow, to use the kindness and savviness of a good businessman. He even used a mother-in-law. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, the one who purchases us, purchases us out of the bondage of sin and gives a hope and a future. As I said, there are no coincidences, only God incidences. God is sovereign and he will fulfill his purposes. He is good and his loving kindness endures for generations. Let us pray. Lord God, you are good. There are definitely hard times when we don't see it, we don't feel it, and it doesn't seem like you have a plan. But Lord, I pray and ask that this book of Ruth, this story, be an encouragement to us that we can see how the story ends. And Lord, not only is it a story where you take care of the individuals, that you restore their life, that you bring blessing to them, Lord. 
but it is a story that shows how we are part of a bigger picture. How we are part of this, this huge biblical narrative. How it's not just about us in our life. But how you can use even us to point to Jesus. Lord, thank you for the book of Ruth. Lord, I pray that we be changed because of your sovereignty and experiencing and reading and seeing that you move among us, that you take care of the poor, the widows, the orphans. Lord, help us to point to Christ, to be like Christ, and to do like he does. We ask all this in Jesus' name.